Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Richard Packard. Richard is from Arnott I Associates, part of the Optegra Group. The company is a key provider of a wide range of ophthalmology treatments. Richard, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Pleasure. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you, Richard. And um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we just first and foremost look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word really mean to you and how does it resonate? A, a leader is somebody who has to be out there, who has to be an example to those that, that uh, he or she is leading. And by that example show what is required of the people underneath them. They have to take responsibility. They have to make decisions very often, which are difficult decisions, which also may mean that they're not as popular as they'd like to be, but they know that those decisions are for the, for the good of all. You can't be a leader without having, a, a, to some extent, a sense of uh, isolation because you're the leader, you're the one, you're the one who's actually out there that has to make those decisions to move any business forward. Mm, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think a lot of people sometimes do forget the fact that leadership comes with a great deal of responsibility and a need to make key decisions um, as well, because it can be associated with the glamour of celebrity and sports and maybe even politics to a degree. And I think sometimes there can be a little bit of a lack of recognition, therefore, for the uh, the pressures on leaders, especially in the uh, the business world. Is that something perhaps that you would agree with? Uh, absolutely right. Uh, although I'm no longer running the, the Arnold business, I ran it for the best part of uh, 20 years. I built up the business by buying uh, other ophthalmic practices. I bought four over the years to, to build uh, a, a patient base and patient volume. But all the way through, the decisions about things like, was I going to buy another practice? Did I have to buy another piece of equipment? What difference was going to make? What was the business case for doing this, that, or the other? Could I um, employ more staff? Did I need more staff? Uh, was I going to uh, redecorate the practice? I mean, all these sort of things play into what you as a leader have to do. And nobody else can make those decisions for you. Exactly right. It's got to be something that you figure out for yourself as a leader. And if we think, Richard, maybe about your own leadership style, if you will, just for a moment, um, how would you go about describing that? Well, honestly, I say it's when I was running, it was a relatively small business. We had uh, four uh, full-time employees, receptionist, office, back office staff, uh, office manager, and so on. And I'd like to think that uh, we had a good and close relationship. Uh, we would make sure that at least a couple of times a year there would be some sort of social event that uh, the practice would pay for to uh, keep us all on, on, on side and, and happy. I like to think that it was a convivial relationship, but also one that recognized that as leader, I was the one that, that everybody had to look up to. They also had to manage all of the doctors who worked there. And at one point, we had 12 consultants. And I can tell you that um, dealing with 12 ophthalmic consultants, to coin a phrase everybody knows, it's like herding cats. There, uh, they all have their own opinions on things, but they also had to recognize that it was my practice, and if they wanted to be there, then they had to abide by my rules. 
I think that's needed from leadership sometimes, isn't it? Just that 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 little bit of authority. Of course, it's important for everybody to be empowered to have their voices heard and really take on their own forms of leadership in a way. But sometimes it does take just that little bit of an authoritative approach just to keep things sort of in place, ticking over. And it's finding that balance, isn't it, as to when to Absolutely. really bring yeah. that approach and in. You know, you can, and you can go to either extreme and then, then things start to fall apart. Mm. I think that's also important uh, to consider as well, because I think if you sort of swing too far towards uh, one way or even too far towards the other, as you rightfully say, it can cause uh, some great issues uh, there for certain. And um, talking, we've talked about, about your leadership style, um, if you will, uh, Richard, but if we sort of um, take that um, just sort of away to one side for a moment, what would you say have been some of the big influences and inspirations behind that way of doing things that you've taken on? Well, the, the major practice that I had bought was the Arnold Associates name. Um, I bought from my mentor, Eric Arnott. And Eric had been the uh, orthotic surgeon who had brought sacral emulsification, which is minimally invasive cataract surgery, to Europe in the early 1970s. He was a great pioneer. And I had been his senior registrar at Charing Cross Hospital. We'd stayed in touch. And he'd always kept me relatively close to practice. And then as I uh, put in an article that was going to go into parliamentary review, he asked me to take over the practice when he um, reached 70 years of age in, uh, in 1999. And I could see, because I did some work in the practice, sort of maneuver myself into it to get to know the patients, the way that he dealt with the staff. And I felt that this was a, a good role model for me. Mm. And I think it's... There's some real um, important messages to take from that in the fact that mentors especially can be some of the most influential people in our lives. And they can be the people really that are closest to us, such as colleagues, friends and family, can't they? And they mm, are yeah. people who, for whom I think there's a little bit of a lack of recognition as well. Just in, because... in, in the National Health Service, when I was, was working for the, the health service, which I did for nearly 46 years, certainly as a senior consultant, I did quite a lot of mentoring of uh, more junior consultants. Mm, and it was very important for them to see how one should conduct oneself. I would agree with that. I think it's um, incredibly um, important and it's a noble thing to do, of course, to um, use that experience and channel that to really educate the uh, the future generation um, of um, emerging leaders as well. And if you did actually have to give some advice to somebody, um, Richard, who were maybe about to embark on a leadership role for the first time within a business, what sort of advice would you give them based upon the experience that you've accumulated? I think you need to have a clear idea of what your goals are as a leader and then try and work out, probably with taking some advice and discussing with uh, those in your team, the best way of actually implementing those ideas and take, in, um, take advice from them because they will also have opinions and their opinions may be better than your opinions, but at least as a as leader, you can weigh them up and decide which way you want to go. I think having good information about uh, and clear ideas about what you want to do is absolutely vitally important. Mm. I would say that it is for sure. And um, I think it's also just as important um, in implementing that plan to ensure that the long-term goal is always held in mind as opposed to short-term gain. Because I think amongst younger people starting out in business for the first time in particular, short-term gain can sometimes be more of an emphasis, whereas that shouldn't really be the case. No, you're absolutely right. Particularly in... Uh, private medicine, which is what I'm in, involved in now, uh, people coming into it seem to think that, oh, well, they'll turn up one day and suddenly they'll be making huge amounts of money. And it doesn't work like that at all. You have to build a practice. 
Mm, it's all about patience, isn't it? And perseverance. Again, two yeah. very important elements of leadership in themselves. Mm. And thinking of the uh, the future um, as well now, uh, Richard, before we do sort of go about wrapping things up on the uh, the programme today, of course, we're in a very, very difficult time with uh, COVID-19 and the impact that that's had. Um, there's going to be a new normal on the horizon. And how do you think it's really going to impact your industry? One of the uh, extraordinary things about the circumstances that we find ourselves in is that normal medicine, apart from those patients who unfortunately have contracted COVID-19 and entered hospital, has stopped. And this is particularly true in the independent sector. But what's actually happened at the moment is that there are huge numbers of empty beds across both the NHS and the private sector. And until those can be satisfactorily filled with appropriate precautions, with uh, protective equipment and patients' understanding that they will, that their risk of actually contracting the virus if they come into hospital is very low, things will not be returning to normal. Uh, the big problem at the moment for the provision of healthcare is that everything will be much, much slower. By the time that we really start to come out of the, uh, the lockdown, there will be 10 million people on NHS waiting lists. In order to try and overcome that particular problem, you would need to increase your throughput by 120 or 130%. The chances of that happening are actually nil because it's more likely that your throughput will actually be 50% of what it was before. And this is as true across the independent sector as it is across the, the NHS. Nobody as yet has come up with a satisfactory plan as to how we can move healthcare for all patients going forward. And I don't see that unless somebody takes a hold of this, we'll ever get out from under this. Because it, it, it is the new normal is just going to be nothing like what it, it has been before. There was an article in the Times yesterday trying to point out, sorry, the Times on, on Saturday, uh, trying to point out that people mustn't expect the health service to be the way it was before. And certainly independent uh, uh, medicine will not be the same as it was before. The other thing, of course, also, as far as the independent sector is concerned, is that because of the economic downturn, many people will give up their private uh, insurance. This will then put a greater strain on the health service, which is already under strain. So I'm not looking, I'm not optimistic. I think that things are going to be bad for a long time before um, the whole of healthcare in this country as we go forward. And from the Arnott-I Associates perspective over the next year, Richard, what do you really hope to achieve as we move through this pandemic? Well, that's quite interesting because the way that Arnott uh, functions in the uh, Queen Anne Street Optegra Central Eye Hospital, the Central London Hospital, um, it's providing very much the general ophthalmic services. It has a very large established patient base who I believe will be very loyal and have been in the past. And on the, the books, over the many years that uh, Arnold has existed, we've got getting on for 75,000 names. Now, obviously, a lot of those have either died or they've, they've had their, their service right and they no longer need to come, but there's an awful lot of people out there who would be coming back. As far as the rest of Optegra is concerned, a lot of their business is what you might call elective lifestyle surgery. That is laser refractive surgery, lens refractive surgery. That remains to be seen as to how that well that will recover. However, because national health waiting lists, particularly for cataract surgery, will be very, very much lengthened, 
I suspect that there will be quite a boom in self-pay patients who can't or don't want to wait for National Health Service waiting lists coming forward. So I think the business may well see a significant surge in that regard, certainly over the next 18 months. Certainly going to be interesting times for sure for uh, the health services um, as a whole, uh, Richard, as you rightfully say there. And, you know, I think given how informative it's been today uh, discussing uh, these issues uh, with yourself, I think it would be great to actually catch up in the next few months and have you back on the programme just to see how things have changed in the time between and just ascertain where we're at at that point. I think that would be fantastic from a listener's perspective. Well, that'd be great, Scott. I'd love to do that. Likewise, though, Richard, it's been a real pleasure having you on uh, the programme today. It's a shame that we're just about out of time. Otherwise, we could discuss it all morning and um, all afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but thank you. It's been a real pleasure, okay. as I say. And do take care and do stay safe with all still going I do. on. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. That was Richard Packard speaking, a senior consultant for R Not I Associates and former owner of the business. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And 
in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome.
Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.